0: It's apparently time to hear from an educated melanin queen, wife and boy mom, keeping it real about the joys and struggles of parenthood and marriage. Discover how to stay true to you while navigating your friendships, the single life, work life, your romantic relationships and parenthood. Although you may gain some useful tips while listening to this podcast, please remember that this This does not replace the support you'd receive from sessions with a licensed mental health professional. All right. Hey, what's up, everyone? And welcome to another episode of It's Apparently Time podcast, where I, your host, Hazel, will be keeping it real. For those of you listening for the first time, I just want to say welcome. And I hope that whatever stage you're in in your life, whether dating, single, married, pregnant, or just trying to be the best you, that you'll enjoy today's episode and decide to come back for more. Now to my regular listeners, thank you so much for your support. Please be sure to share, subscribe, like, and leave your positive reviews. And if there's a topic you would like for me to discuss, you can send it to me on Instagram at itsapparentlytime. And that's C L Y T I M E. Lastly, for those of you who would like to make a donation towards a production and advancement of this podcast, go ahead and click the link that says support and know that your contribution is greatly appreciated. All right, so let's jump right into our conversation for today where we are going to be talking all things women's health. And with me for today to help me with this conversation is Dr. HySynth Norris, an Oakwood alum. Hey, HySynth. Hello,
1: hello, how are you doing?
0: Good, I am happy, like we were just talking about for the extra sunshine and the longer days.
1: Amen, amen, yes, very much, very much thankful for it.
0: Yeah, for sure. So before we jump into like the questions and stuff like that, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, tell them a little bit about yourself. And I've been doing something a little bit different. Too. After you do your introduction, just, uh, I guess, tell us one fun fact about yourself.
1: Ooh. Okay. (laughs) I'm ready for it. Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Dr. Hyacinth Norris. I'm a board certified OBGYN in the Maryland, DC area. Uh, Biggest passion of mine is really patient education. So I'm thrilled to be here on this show to allow some expertise to kind of spread and intermingle with the, the listener questions so we can really get into the meat of things and help you be your own best self-advocate. Um, special fun fact about me is that I used to be an extreme couponer and a secret diner. So I'm all about the <laughs> free and cheap things.
0: Yes, I you actually inspired me. Like years ago when you started, you inspired me and I actually did it. I think I might have to post some pictures For people to see, like literally, like all jokes aside, before the pandemic hit and before I had my last baby, I was couponing hard. Like two weeks up until I had him, I was in the stores, like just couponing (laughs) to to prepare for him. Little did I know that three months after he was born, we would be in the middle of like this global pandemic. Um, So yeah. I say for those people who don't coupon, I don't care how much money you make, you have to try it at least once in your life because mm-hmm. it's like, yo, I can't believe I've been paying full price for all of these things that I could get so cheap.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Every time I pay for toothpaste, I just get so angry. I'm like, this should
0: be free. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So we have two couponers here.
1: Yes, yes.
0: All right. So, for today, you know, we're going to be talking about all things women's health from um a pap smear, why is it necessary? All the way down to when should I start thinking about freezing my eggs? Now, some of these questions, you know, I've like written, but some of them also have come from some of the listeners who really want wanted to have uh, I guess a clearer understanding of what they need to be doing and thinking about. Yeah, so so the first question we have is why is a pap smear needed if someone has received their hpv shots already
1: yes that's a great question so um the hpv shot will protect you against nine depending on what what you got your hpv shot but nine different types of hpv okay two of those are the low-risk ones that do not cause cervical cancer but the other seven are the high-risk ones that truly do cause cervical cancer over time now every person who is vaccinated has a variable level of immunity, uh, which means that everyone doesn't receive and retain the same amount of immunity throughout their lifestyle. Um, And so even if you have been appropriately vaccinated when you were younger, you can still come in contact with other strains of high-risk HPV that are not contained in that vaccine. Uh, And the pap smear actually looks at the cells, not just the presence of HPV, looks at the cells to also see if they have turned abnormal. And so we do this bare minimum screening every three years until the age of 30, and then every five years, depending on what's going on with your cervix, after the age of 30 to 65, in order to catch any small changes that could potentially be precancerous so we can avoid getting to cervical
0: cancer. Hmm, yeah, so very. I, I think the lesson I'm hearing here is make sure that you are getting your Pap smear test regularly. It's yes, a little yes, uncomfortable, yes. but I mean, I'm the the <laughs> reward to not, you know, to be able to catch cancer early far outweighs the pain that you feel for, you know, the minute or two that your OB right down there. Right.
1: And, and the other thing is, if you're having pain during your pelvic exam, you need to speak up. Okay, I don't do painful exams. i do not believe in that. And so if you are experiencing pain, you need to speak to your doctor, the person, whoever's doing your pelvic exam, ask them to modify some things. And then the trick of the trade is really making sure your legs go all the way out to the side like a butterfly. Okay. See is kind of awkward but it actually relaxes your pelvic floor so you're not fighting against the speculum that decreases the amount of discomfort that you have during your exam
0: yeah y'all if you guys do not follow hi dr norris on instagram she did a really funny reel i can't even remember how long ago it was (laughs) was a couple of months ago now yes It depicts every woman's struggle when they go to their OB's office and they're like, all right, come on, slide on down.
1: <laughs> and they get the little, the little half inch scoot down. Yeah. And I'm like, ma'am, you are a foot away from the edge of the bed. Keep it coming, keep it coming.
0: All right, so question number two. If breast cancer runs in your family, is it a danger to get elective work done such as implants, a lift, or a reduction?
1: Okay, so it's not dangerous. however, if breast cancer does run in your family, you need to find out if it's genetic or if it which just happened kind of sporadically. Um, if the woman in your family who acquired breast cancer was older, less likely to be genetic. but if they were under the age of 40 or you have any breast cancer in your immediate family, you really do need to check out and see if you need to see a genetic counselor or have genetic testing because there are things that we can do to decrease your risk of breast cancer. And some of that does include um, double mastectomy. So a prophylactic, meaning prevention um, mastectomy, which is removal of the breast tissue. And with that, you can also have um, breast reconstruction and have implants placed to get the look that you may be looking for, but also get the protection from breast cancer. And so the, the main point of this is to be, yeah, so if breast cancer runs in your family, make sure you find out if you have a genetic cause for it. And so if you do, then there might be additional steps you need to take before you have elective surgery for your breast.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Very important. All right. So let's see. Um, I'm trying to figure out which one I should ask first. Cause these next questions have to do with like um, childbearing. Oh no, actually this one doesn't. So is it necessary to see an OBGYN if you're not sexually active? It's if, if yes, how often?
1: Yes, it is. So we actually recommend starting to come see us at age 15. So that seems really, really young, right? Um, But at that point in time, your body has changed so, so much. And there is really no better person to ask the questions about your changing body than your OBGYN. This is all that we do. We do women's health and women's bodily changes. And asking the people who are the experts in the field will actually give you better knowledge, as opposed to just looking online or hearing from family members who may have a skewed view of women's health. Um, even if you're not sexually active, we do recommend that you come every year um, to make sure that there's no changes to the skin around the vulva, the skin and the vagina. Um, under the age of 21, we tend not to do pelvic exams unless there's a big necessity for it, meaning a persistent infection, persistent pain that we can't really figure out any other way. But after the age of 21, we definitely recommend coming in for your yearly breast and pelvic exams.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what are, this is slightly off Course, but not really. What are like two tips you feel like you would give to women who are looking for an OBGYN in terms of like how to advocate for themselves? Mm-hmm. If they connect with, if they find someone and they're not really feeling the vibe, what um, advice would you give to them? Okay, so yeah, the big thing about finding someone who you mesh with is
1: to kind of test it out, and that sometimes can be. That can lead to some unfortunate meetings um, if that person is not the best um, at patient education. What um, one thing you can always do when you go into the OBGYN's office, you can ask for whatever physician or provider you desire, so if you want to see a female physician, if you want to see a Black physician, if you want to see a physician who speaks Amharic or a physician who speaks Spanish, then ask for those things. It's not considered rude. It's really considered patient advocacy. And we do not take offense when you're looking for something specific to help your health goals. The other thing that you can always do is that if you're ever in a physician's office and you're not quite understanding why they're doing things and they're not explaining things to you just ask. Speak up for yourself and say, excuse me, can you explain to me why I need this exam? Why I need this test? What is the purpose of this particular medication? Will it help my symptoms or will it help the source? If you ask those questions, a lot of times that will prompt more patient education. And to be honest, we all are patient educators, right? Some people are better at their jobs than others. But if you find out that that person is really just not communicating well with you, Try to find someone else. And I know that could be a little bit tricky depending on what type of insurance you have, but usually
0: there's several options in your insurance plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I, I would say that too. Like If you're thinking about having a baby or you're trying and you find that you are starting to interview and ask certain questions of your current OBGYN or you're looking for one, definitely use that as an opportunity right then and there to make those changes, because you got to remember, this is the person that's going to be delivering your baby. So Mm -hmm. like when you think about it that way, do you feel like this person actively will advocate for you, hands down, regardless of who's in the room? And if the answer is no, then it's like, you know what? I'm out. I'm finding somebody else, because your life and your baby's life are in this person's hands, for sure. Absolutely. And then Mm -hmm. you also
1: want to make sure that that OBGYN you're interviewing still delivers babies and so a lot of us actually step away from delivering babies because it's a really really stressful job Um, and some of us get a little bit burnt out after the long nights and doing it for years and years and so you may have a favorite doctor who you love but they may no longer deliver babies. They might strictly just be doing gynecologic care. And so you do want to inquire about that if you're thinking about sticking to that person. And then also ask about their practice model. Do they always deliver their own patients? Because that means that they're technically on call 24-7, right? And that's not super common anymore. There's a lot of group practices.
0: And- In a group practice, you just want to make sure that you're aware of who it is that might be delivering your baby if your doctor isn't. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that was a part of my experience. So my OB um, works in a group practice, and I had the opportunity while I was pregnant to meet with some of the different doctors. And in those different meetings, I was like, "Okay, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really want to keep seeing you." So as I um, got more comfortable with seeing, you know, different people, I recognized who I matched with and who I felt comfortable with, and those are the people that I continued to see. And luckily. One of the doctors that I liked was the one that delivered my baby and she was amazing.
1: Awesome. Yeah. That's good. That's so good. Sometimes we yeah. get the luck of the draw and that's excellent. That's excellent. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So let me see. So the next question is, all right. So now this is related to more so like childbearing. Um, so I guess I'll do this one first. What steps should be taken to prepare your body for pregnancy?
1: Oh yeah. So before you get pregnant, the first thing you need to do is make sure that you are not only you know mentally ready, financially ready. Oh my gosh, they're so expensive, but also <laughs> physically ready, right? And so a lot of us have medical issues that oftentimes are uncontrolled or are not really monitored. Um, when we're not pregnant. And so pregnancy and maternity care is usually one of the first times a lot of women actually enter the health system. And they enter that system with diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, all these things have really big impact on your pregnancy. And so if we address some of these things ahead of time, that can actually make your pregnancy healthier and a lot lower risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, if you're planning a pregnancy within the next year, recommend going in to see your OBGYN for a preconception appointment so you can get some counseling on how best to prepare yourself. Um, A lot of the counseling will involve preventative health changes. Like we always advocate making sure you're exercising, eating a healthy diet, low in empty calories and sugars, high and healthy fats and fibers and a moderate amount of proteins. Americans do a whole lot of protein here and that can also be harmful to your kidneys. And so, um, you know, part of that, that uh, counseling is gonna be dietary counseling, uh, preventative care counseling. But then we also recommend if you're planning a pregnancy, you need to start prenatal vitamins early. So at least three months in advance, but you really can be on prenatal vitamins your entire, you know, 20s and 30s without any harm. Mm -hmm.
0: They're just expensive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You mentioned something that's important. I'm just going to, I know you guys can't see us, but I have my windows open to let some sunshine in and the sun is like shining in my face. (laughs) But you mentioned something in the beginning about making sure that you're prepared mentally. And something that I'm trying to do, you know, as a marriage and family therapist is figuring out how to close that gap between the medical and the mental side of preparing for childbirth. So what, what's a way that you feel like, or what are some changes that you feel like needs to take place in order for clinicians to be a part of that process of helping, or, or I guess the preconception plan and like how can, how can that gap kind of be closed a little bit more? What are your thoughts on that as a doctor?
1: Yeah. So, it you know, it definitely is tough given a lot of the time restraints. We usually only have 10 to 20 minutes max um, for these counseling sessions. Um, but I send all of my patients to a therapist. I think everyone needs to see a therapist just like they see a doctor once a year. You need to have someone in your Rolodex old school. I know people don't know what a Rolodex is anymore, but that's your phone book. Yeah. (laughs) It used to be on paper. Okay. You need to have someone in your circle you can reach out to who's a professional. They've been trained in handling um, the different aspects of mental care. And it's very important that you have that person available to you because even if you may feel okay, there might be some things that they can identify that you can improve, right? Right. And so in all of my patient encounters, I always ask them how they're feeling, if they're feeling more anxious or more depressed about anything, especially with the pandemic. I think this has really opened our eyes a lot to the um, importance of mental health, right? We haven't had a chance to just work away our feelings. We've all kind of been stuck at home. Mm -hmm. And so when you're stuck at home with your feelings, you're aware of them more. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of given us an additional entry point to discuss this with our patients. And so I think part of it is just an acceptance that mental health is part of the whole body care. And and so I think on a physician side, making sure that we're always encouraging um, contact with um, the mental health professionals, but also asking, just simply asking how a person is doing and seeing where their first mental state are can actually help us guide them, right? If you are incredibly stressed and anxious, This may not be the time to get pregnant, right? Mm -hmm. You may want to work on that first, get some really good coping mechanisms before we move on to a very stressful, stressful part of life. And then after the kids come, Lord have mercy. (laughs) You need
0: a strong mental state. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. You would never lie. Oh my gosh. Having kids is a beautiful thing, but the other side of it is that they will test you in ways that you never knew you could be tested. And Never it, knew. It, Yes. And it, it definitely uh, forces you to address some things that you probably been pushing under the rug all these years. It's like, ooh, you have mm-hmm. brought this to my yeah, attention. I the, I need, yeah, I need to focus on you gotta this get now. The
1: anger, the anger mm-hmm. issues under control because you can't be snapping at your children. They just got to this world. They don't know what to do. You have to be able to be patient. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to employ some breathing techniques. I did some meditative breathing. When I woke up to find my my baby boy turned the bidet on in our bathroom and it's shooting water everywhere, <laughs> all over. First thing in the morning, water all over the bathroom. I had to pray on it, had to breathe, and right. So so instead of taking out anger Ooh. or you know annoyance on my son, I was able to say, okay, I know that was fun, yeah. <laughs> but now we get to clean up. Yeah. mommy has breathed through this yes. moment. <laughs>
0: Listen, listen, you are telling the real side of parenthood. Like, yes, they may be cute and little now, but they get cute and and they wreak havoc as they get older. So Mm -hmm. gotta be ready for that. Mm -hmm. All right, so it says here, what's an appropriate age to start thinking about freezing your eggs? Yeah, so I,
1: on average, would say when you get to... Your early 30s. If you don't feel like you're in the place where you want to start or expand your family, that may be the the time that you want to start thinking about freezing eggs. So our fertility pretty sharply declines. It starts to decline after the age of 35, um, and then after 40, the egg quality is so low that while a lot of people do, um, they are able to get pregnant. A lot of times, those pregnancies have a much higher risk of um, abnormalities with the chromosomes, and so. That can put a very large burden on a family, um, but also can result in um, pregnancy loss. And so, the earlier we have our eggs frozen and stored, the we can kind of look at our life goals and planning, and then insert our pregnancies as we see fit, as opposed to trying to erase this, you know, internal clock that we have ticking at all times.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you think about that, I just think about that idea of, oh, my clock is ticking and that can lead to so many wrong decisions, like getting into a relationship that you know you have no business being in just so that you can have a baby. Um, absolutely. And then, you know, God forbid the, the relationship doesn't work out. And here you are now having to kind of figure this out on your own. And I'm not saying that, you know, single parents can't get it done. You absolutely can, but- when you take a step back and you recognize, hey, I'm not going to rush into a relationship that I don't need or I'm not ready for, and you kind of take your time and you plan, you're able to set yourself up for more success or to feel, I guess, um, more uh, happy or... Um, In control. Well, you yeah. just have
1: more control of your life. Yeah. That yeah. This has really been um, between egg freezing and birth control. That really is what allowed women to gain more control. We're yeah. not now subjected to just being pregnant at all times you know at the whim of our partner and our cycles right so Mm -hmm. now we have a little bit more control as to when we want to be pregnant and some people that's every other year every year for some people and that's fine um however a lot of people don't want that and so if you don't want that you can have a little bit more control if you freeze your eggs um because i'll tell you 30-year-old eggs are going to be a lot better than having 35, 36, 37-year-old eggs um, when, when you make your decision to start your family.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. All right, let's see. How long should one wait after a miscarriage or loss before trying again?
1: So this is a good question because I... I think there's a lot of different answers that I have seen and heard personally. Um, There's no great answer as as to time frame. Um, However, first you want to make sure that you're in an okay mental state, right? So any pregnancy loss is a loss, no matter how early it was. From the moment you see that positive pregnancy test, you kind of plan your entire child's life, right? In that moment, Mm -hmm. and so. Even an early pregnancy loss can be devastating. Um, and so you really wanna take the time to grieve. And once you're done that grieving process, your body is usually ready. Okay, your body is, as soon as you have your next period, you're ready to conceive.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: there's no, there's usually no uh, time limit or frame required for, on a physical standpoint, um, but you do wanna give yourself enough time to process the loss and grieve appropriately. I usually tell my patients, give it at least one menstrual cycle. So that way we could redate your pregnancy accurately, um, as opposed to just hopping right back in and having intercourse. Because before you get your period, you ovulate. And so you could actually get pregnant before your next period. And we just would have a much harder time knowing how to date the pregnancy if we don't have that first period happening.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I highlight right there with the grief counseling you, you, you may not necessarily need to go to someone who specializes in grief counseling, but still talking to a counselor and processing through those feelings, the, the guilt, the messages that you are now telling yourself because of that loss, especially as a woman, um, you know, like is something wrong with me or, you know, all the other questions that might be going through your mind, definitely having someone to talk through that with. And even having, you know, your partner's perspective as well, because even though they may not be the birthing individual, they're impacted in some way by that loss as well. I remember that movie, Um, Why Did I Get Married? You know, Janet Jackson and the dude that Mm -hmm. plays her husband. That was kind of like their story. It wasn't like a pregnancy loss, but they lost their child at a young age. And they kind of carried that throughout their whole relationship because they didn't take the time to sit down and address it with someone. So yeah, definitely seek that support. What factors um, constitutes a high risk pregnancy?
1: Okay, so there's a lot of things that can make someone high risk. And so um, any uncontrolled medical issues can make you high risk. So things like high blood pressure, um, poorly controlled asthma, Um, diabetes, either type one, which is the one people usually get when they're younger, or type two, the one they get when they're older. Both of those make you high risk. Um, Being over the age of 35 makes you higher risk. Um, Just when it comes to the placental integrity and how it functions, you just are carrying a high risk pregnancy at that point in time. Um, In vitro fertilization can can make you a high risk pregnancy as well, depending on the technique used um, to get you pregnant. Um, And then depending on, excuse me, depending on um, your weight, either being very underweight or very overweight can also put you at higher risk for different complications during your pregnancy. So there's actually a lot of things. That can make you high risk, and so one of the first things I do at my new OB appointments is I let them know where they fall in that risk factor, um, you know, that list. If they're a low risk pregnancy, then I can say at this moment you are a low risk pregnancy. I can always change. Um, we consider someone having a low risk pregnancy truly as a retro act of a retro perspective diagnosis. So at the end of your pregnancy and your postpartum time period, if everything went perfectly fine, no issues. You had a low risk pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. But I can't say in advance for sure, you're just going to be low risk
0: Mm -hmm. because things can change. Yeah, for sure. Good to know. All right. Let's see. Um, What are the best options for birth control?
1: Oh, so the best birth control is the one that you will take. There are so many different types of birth control out there. Um, And the ones I always start with are the ones that have the lowest rates of pregnancy. And so the best birth control that we have at this moment is the implant, the next one on, the one that goes underneath your skin that lasts for three years. The rest of pregnancy is 0.05, right? So that's better than getting your tubes tied. That's better than getting a vasectomy. And it's reversible. Um, but every birth control that we have out there has side effects. And so for that particular one, you're gonna see more side effects when it comes to unscheduled, untimed bleeding. And that really can just happen sporadically throughout the entire time you have it. Tier category, IUDs, so the things like the Morena, the Kylena, the Skyla, the Liletta, um, or the non-hormonal one um, called the Paragard, all those have very, very, very low risk of pregnancies. And those all go inside the uterus and they don't have to be monitored by way of the patient taking it or or doing anything with it on a regular basis, right? You just check it every so often after your periods or once or twice a year, depending on if you don't get periods with your birth control option. Um, And that is a hands-off approach to having really, really good contraception. Um, When we get down into the pills, the patch, the ring, the NuvaRing, those have higher risk of pregnancy simply because you are controlling it, right? And there's human nature involved. And so anytime we are in charge of something, we forget things. And so the more you forget your birth control, you forget to put the patch on, or you have some beautiful lotion that's making your skin so silky and the patch falls off, well, you just lost your contraception, right? And so um, depending on how well you take that birth control, that will reflect on how low your risk of pregnancy is. And Mm -hmm. so we tend to... um, encourage people to look at options that they don't really have to think about because if they don't want to be pregnant, we don't want you to get pregnant. And so the best forms of contraception tend to be the long acting reversible contraceptions that Mm -hmm. Nexplanon, the IUDs, those all tend to do huge risk of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. But it really just depends on what you will take and what you will be happy with and what your body meshes well with. Everything is so individualized we don't know how you respond based on how your friends or your mom responded or how everyone else responds. It's very individualized. So sometimes it's a trial and error um, until we find one that's perfect for you.
0: Mm-hmm. And definitely, 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 please ask your OBGYN questions, ask for pamphlets, take time to read it. You are not obligated to sit there and make a decision right there and then. Like take oh, yes, it, no. digest it and then go back and ask more questions if you have more for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, (laughs) This is uh, the second to last question. (laughs) Why must there be a wait before having sexual intercourse after delivery of a baby?
1: Yeah, so I cannot imagine wanting to have intercourse with anything thrusting anywhere close (laughs) to me after a major abdominal surgery or after a vaginal delivery, your pelvic floor has gone through so much. We ask that you just rest it for a few weeks so we can go and return back to normal so you can heal. Um, your cervix is also decently open um, for several weeks uh, after the delivery of a child. Now, if you've had a cesarean section, a lot of times we'll actually open the cervix a little bit so that way the blood can exit. So your cervix is also open too. We request that you do that to limit your risk of infection because you're gonna be at higher risk for infection after delivery, especially if you had a surgical procedure to deliver your baby. Um, But also just to give yourself a chance to rest. There's no true cutoff for presumption of intercourse. Uh, It's really just when you feel comfortable, when you're not having pain, then you can resume intercourse with the understanding that some people ovulate earlier than um, what they expect or anticipate. And you can get pregnant immediately after delivery. And so just be very careful, use contraception, use condoms if you haven't established a better form of contraception with your OB prior to that point in time. But you don't just want to wing it because what you don't want to do is come back pregnant to your postpartum visit. That's happened several times. And I assure you, no one is happy.
0: (laughs) I couldn't imagine having a six <laughs> week old and I'm like hey I'm pregnant again I don't yeah. know I think I would lose every marble <laughs> that <laughs> was left in my head I mean the six weeks it happen. may be still probably not sleeping that well if you're nursing mm-hmm. they're up every what like two to four hours like no thank
1: mm-hmm. you <laughs> yep It definitely happens. We do not advise it. The optimal pregnancy interval is 18 to 22 months. And so we ask that you respectfully allow your body to rest and recover during that time period. You don't have to be abstinent that entire time, but we do ask that you have some level of, you know, pelvic rest. We usually say about four to six weeks.
0: Yeah, for sure. All right. So, last question, or I guess last thing What are two tips that you would provide to? Uh, women, birthing people, um, those who are considering starting a family, what are two tips that you would give to them that they can have the, I guess, best, most healthy experience possible?
1: Mm. So um, find someone who you truly mesh with, somebody who you trust with your body and your baby's body, right? And so every time I'm seeing a pregnant patient, I'm taking care of two people. I have two patients at all times. And my goal is to always work in their best interest. If you ever have a question on whether or not the doctor you're working with is working towards your best interest, you need to find another one, okay? And you wanna do it early. You don't wanna wait until you're 36 weeks. But at that point in time, it's very difficult to find someone who will accept your care of transfer at 36 weeks. So if you're not feeling like you're meshing well, you don't feel like you're being heard, your questions are not being answered, you're being ignored, all of those things are red flags and you need to find a new physician immediately, okay? Um, the other thing I would say is to be truly informed of all of your options. And so anytime a physician offers you or recommends treatment, they should be going over the risks of that treatment, the benefits of that, that treatment and the alternative of that treatment. If you don't have a good understanding of all of those things, You cannot make an informed decision for or against a treatment. And what I will find is a lot of people who don't understand something, their trigger is to go toward a no because they want to protect themselves from anything new and weird and unusual, which is normal human nature. But if you are knowing something you don't understand, then you are potentially harming yourself. Right. And so the recommendations your physicians are making should be evidence based. And I use that word very carefully. They should be evidence based. And so if you are finding that you have found something else online that um offers alternatives, ask them so that way, and then you can whether or not you want to have that procedure done or start that treatment plan. Um, but you can't truly make an informed decision or informed decision to refuse treatment if you don't understand what's going on. And so make sure. Before you sign anything, you agree to anything, you know all the pros and cons about that particular treatment.
0: Yeah, for sure. Advocate, advocate, advocate. Stand up for yourself. I mean, if that's not what I heard or if that's not what you heard. That's 100 percent. Yeah. Advocate for yourself. Ask questions. Fire. I like to tell my clients if you don't feel like I'm a good fit, or if you find somebody else that you don't feel like is a good fit, fire them. Find somebody else. Like it's okay. Mm -hmm. Our feelings will not be hurt. I promise you. (laughs) Uh,
1: I'll tell you, people think we get offended about a lot of things. In order to be a physician, you have some thick, thick skin. We have gotten it from all sides from our training, from undergrads to medical students and residency, that brutal, brutal residency we've all kind of been through to practice where we're dealing with people every, every single day. We have thick skin, okay? And if we're not for you, that's okay. We're not going to be for everyone. Each person meshes up differently. Find the person you mesh with so you can have the best opportunity to have good care, especially if you're black or brown woman. Remember that we have higher risk factors. We are more likely to be ignored. So you need to find someone who is truly interested in your best, Healthcare and who will listen to you because you are the expert of your body. I'm the expert of OBGYM. I am not an expert on your body. And so, unless we work collaboratively, we cannot have you have the best healthcare. So, it's very important that you and I work together, you and your physician work together in order to truly, truly mesh and have good outcomes for you and your family.
0: Yes, absolutely. Dr. Norris, or as I call her, my home. That is our little inside joke. From when we did a summer of research at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I thank you so much for absolutely. sharing your expertise and for um, helping families, couples, individuals learn um, some useful tips on how they can live their best life and make sure that they're setting themselves up for success in relation to taking Medicare of their health.
1: Thank you for having me. I truly appreciate being here. Yeah.
0: All right you all